0: Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. Martin Buber, one of the 20th century's greatest Jewish scholars and thinkers, is known primarily as an existentialist philosopher and a scholar of the Hasidic tradition. He is known, but less well so, for his political theory and activism. And yet, as Samuel Chaim Brody argues in his recent book, Martin Buber's Theopolitics, Buber's writings on the Bible provide critical source material for and insight into Buber's political intellect and engagement and this has significant repercussions for diverse fields of academic and political endeavor. Martin Buber's Theopolitics was published in 2018 by Indiana University Press. Its author, Samuel Chaim Brody, is an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Kansas, and he joins me today to talk about his book. Professor Brody, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So um, Martin Buber is a towering figure, as most of uh, the listeners to this podcast will know, in Jewish thought and philosophy. But he's not as well known for the significant work he produced uh, at the intersection of theology and politics. How, mm-hmm. how did you discover and become interested in this aspect of his work?
1: Um, so I suppose there are some uh, biographical reasons and some Reasons having to do with just timing, um, when I started to become interested in, in him, um, biographically, uh, when I was an undergraduate, um, I was in an interdisciplinary major and I had to, um, combine my interests to write a thesis as just part of what the major required. So I combined my interests in Jewish thought in the Israel-Palestine conflict and, um, in uh, Middle East studies in general, by writing about uh, Buber's binationalist nationalist group, Greet Shalom. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I got to graduate school, it seemed like a lot of people were very interested in political theology. And it occurred to me that there was a bunch of political theology in the topic I had already been interested in, but that it wasn't usually written about from that perspective, Um, it was written about from the standpoint of really a kind of very narrow, um, discursive interest of the present, namely, you know, um, the legitimacy of Zionism and the relationship between Zionism and Jews and Jews in general, and, uh, you know, the diversity of different types of Zionism, et cetera, but just in terms of, you know, political theology, how Jews think about politics theologically, how that might be different from or similar to ways that Christians or Muslims think about it. Uh, there was not much out there. So.
0: Interesting. So you, you've already touched on uh, an issue that I wanted to ask you about later, but since you touched on it, I, I, I can't resist asking you about it now. And that is about the difference, which I think is critical between political theology and theopolitics hmm Can you expand on on that and what the whether it's simply a semantic difference and if not, what the substantive differences are?
1: Uh yeah, sure. So um theopolitics is Buber's own word. Uh mm-hmm. he uses it um in German, uh Theopolitik, and when he writes in Hebrew, it's theopolitika. Mm-hmm. And uh he I think, and I'm drawing on previous scholarship here when I guess this, because he never really argues it explicitly, but it seems as though he chooses this term in intentional opposition to political theology, which was a discourse that was already prominent in German theological circles in the 20s and 30s. Mm -hmm. Um, And he seems to have understood political theology as... um, essentially, uh, a a theology that is distorted by politics, um, a theology that serves politics uh, instead of being served by politics. Um, So if he uses the term theopolitics in intentional opposition to political theology, then it seems to mean that he is interested in a politics that is informed by God rather than a conception of god that is meant to serve political ends um i see and so okay. yeah and and specifically he mentioned several times that he sees um a form of political religious argumentation that is intended to justify existing hierarchies and regimes of power right. and he sees theopolitics as um directed against that as a as potentially undermining existing hierarchies and regimes of power by relativizing all human authority um, and conceiving of God as the source of, but also the only legitimate uh, authority. Which is interesting.
0: um, And I want to get back to that later when I ask you a little bit about uh, his book, The Kingship of God, in which he talks about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But another term that I think we have to understand in order to fully appreciate uh, your excellent scholarship on his work is anarchism. Mm-hmm. It's a key component of Buber's thought. Um, uh, many of us have uh, dim conceptions and prejudices about what that word actually means. How are we to understand Buber's form of anarchism and what its roots and influences are?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, good question. Uh, so anarchism means many things, Um I, part of my book is a little bit of a polemic with one of the more common ways it's used in Jewish studies, which is sometimes you'll see the term invoked to essentially mean the same thing as antinomianism. Yeah. Um, it's used with reference specifically to religious matters, to this fear of religion, to halacha, And it refers to the notion that the rabbinic structure of authority is not the appropriate or only Jewish way of, uh, relating to God. Um,
0: -hmm.
1: but I'm more interested in this work in, uh, political anarchism, which as a movement was very strong in the late 19th and early 20th century when Buber was becoming politically aware. Um, and which, uh, was really for a while, a kind of contender for the loyalty of you know, the Jewish working masses alongside socialism and communism of which it considered itself one version. Um, Mm -hmm. and it was essentially the version of socialism or communism that was suspicious of efforts to harness and domesticate the power of the state, um, in the service of, uh, redistribution of property or expropriation of the wealthy, um, and really was more interested in um, the idea that society could be constituted entirely on the basis of voluntary relationships and that um, it was important to try to achieve that society also by voluntary means. Uh, And this was a debate within anarchism because of course uh, anarchism was very well known in the early 20th century for inspiring assassins um, right. and bombers, uh, like the right. assassin uh, of President McKinley or um, various royal authorities uh, throughout Europe. And Gustav Landauer, who was a German anarchist, um, argued that this was an authoritarian mode of political action um, and that you couldn't actually um, just do some sort of dramatic, um, violent mode of action and call that something that would achieve anarchism? Because the only way to establish a voluntary society is through um, doing the kinds of things that you would want to see done in that society.
0: Interestingly, and i once again jumping ahead of my questions because you mentioned this with respect to Landauer, in The Kingship of God, uh, Buber says, I have designated as the paradox of the theocratic order the fact that the more purely it occurs, the less it wishes to compel obedience, that accordingly it is a strong bastion for the obedient, but also at the same time can be a shelter to the self-seeking behind which he exalts his lack of commitment as divine freedom. So I think what he's saying there, and you talk about this in the book, is that one of the problems with a voluntary society is it sort of creates um, opportunity not only for passivity, but for uh the rogue and the cynic to move in and expropriate power and to set up systems in what should be more of a a systemless system. Did Buber address that issue at length? Does he address it at length in Kingship of God? And and how does he address it with Landauer, who's one of the major influences on him?
1: Yeah, so this is the this is the paradox. Um he, he talks about this, I think, because, you know, he has in mind, um, maybe in the back of his mind, because it's, it's really remarkable, and probably this is one of the reasons that he's not often dealt with as a political thinker, but he really deals very little with liberalism. He seems to find it uninteresting. He talks about fascism probably more than he talks about liberalism. He talks about communism more than he talks about liberalism. But the classic liberal justification for the state is that the state... Um stops the war of all against all, right? The state um is created in order to protect the individuals and their property, and to keep some some strong man from kind of dominating others, right? Um, so hypothetically, um, anarchists are aware of the problem of the the strong man who wants to dominate others, and they, um would have to be okay with restraining such a person, right? But they cannot resort to the state as the mechanism of that restraint. So um, I think that this is part of the reason that you sometimes see these kind of dramatic and romantic figures of divine violence. Uh, Some people would consider Benjamin's critique of violence in anarchist texts, and uh, he talks about Korach in that text. And Buber also talks about Korak, right? And Korak is seen as an example of this type of demagogue and what happens to him. God opens up a fissure in the earth and swallows him, right? So people don't have to essentially deal with it. Um, The state doesn't have to be created at that point. It's not created until later. Um, And, you know, it's, uh, I get, you get the sense that, it's really a question of a trade-off, that it's just the trade-off isn't worth it. It's better to deal with the problem of the strong man than to um, institutionalize human authority in a state um, which is essentially idolatry from the standpoint of theopolitics. So
0: interesting. And of course, the historical context of when Buber's doing this and thinking about this is the context of the emergence of the Reich, the German state, and German nationalism and these new ideas of the state. And in fact, he's very, he's a German nationalist early on, and he's strongly in favor of uh, Germany's war efforts. Isn't that, is that so? And how does that, how how does, how does he turn, does he turn away from that? And if so, how?
1: Yeah. So he is very susceptible in his early years to romantic rationales for World War I. Um, Mm -hmm. He writes some really off the wall stuff about how, Soldiers on opposite sides of the trenches will all be elevated together in a higher spiritual unity of commitment to ultimate, you know, uh, existential value. And um Landauer is really the one who um, snaps him out of that essentially by saying, you know, this is completely disconnected from the reality of war. And uh, mm-hmm. unless you are willing to, you know, look someone in the face and you know tell them that they should really die for this. You know, really, you have no business talking about politics at all. That's how,
0: that's mm-hmm. how
1: ridiculous mm-hmm. this is. Um, and you know, um, it seems like, and uh, Paul Mendes-Flores talks about this in his uh, From Mysticism to Dialogue. It seems like Buber's response to that was really to just get on a train and go talk to Landauer in person, um, and it. From that point on, um, you never see him again, uh, using the state as the vehicle for values in this way, uh, later on, um, for example, during the cold war, uh, he denies equally that the United States of America represents the principle of freedom and that the Soviet union represents the principle of equality, um, he seems to essentially be moved by Landauer towards a more realistic uh, approbation of political forces and how they work in the world. And this causes him to really struggle with the question of um, how to be an idealist, how to approach politics so that it can be in some sense a scene for the realization of ideals, but without falling into some sort of naivete, without... um, just becoming disconnected again. Um,
0: So this raises two really interesting large questions that you deal with at length in your book and that I'd love for you to talk about with our listeners. One is, um, what is the influence of his political thought on his approach to Zionism and the challenge of building this Jewish state and particularly how to approach the Arab populations that already live in the area. Mm.
1: Um, So essentially what I think most of the book is taken up with is a comparison of the way that Buber talks about ancient Israel and the way that he talks Mm -hmm. about modern Israel. Um, And Mm. as Buber understands the story of the Bible, and really he has a very, very strong reading of the entire Tanakh, a unified reading that sees the Tanakh as essentially telling one story, even as when you look at his biblical writings, it's all done in the genre of academic biblical scholarship. And he recognizes that there are right. different authors and different editors and so on and so forth. But the story that he sees the Tanakh is telling is that God selects this people for a covenant. The covenant is a political, a theopolitical covenant. They are to create a certain type of society. He doesn't give them a religion. He gives them a society, essentially a mandate to enact a constitution of a certain type and God will be the King. And the people attempt to do this for a while, but they run into a bunch of obstacles. One of which is the presence of other people in the land. Um, Mm -hmm. And at certain points, the people in the land have more power than they do and oppress them. And then when they're oppressed, they obviously can't, carry out this divine will because they don't have the power to order their own affairs. So they have right. the judges come forth and the judges free them and liberate them so that they can order their own affairs. But then sometimes when they can order their own affairs they do idolatry and they do injustice and then they don't do what they're supposed to be doing and then lo and behold they get oppressed again. So that's the whole story of the Tanakh essentially and and sometimes the oppression eventuates in exile. And so as Buber sees it, all of Jewish history from that point onward is simply almost like an unfinished sentence. It's like the Jews still have this responsibility. They still have this mandate. They still are under an obligation to form this society with God as a king, but they don't do it. And so that's the basis of his Zionism in the first place is that he sees the Jews as having this obligation on account of their election to order their own affairs rather than allow them to be ordered by others. But the catch is that they shouldn't make the same mistake that they made the first time when they installed this human monarchy, which was supposedly supposed to protect them and allow them to, um, to worship God in the way that they were supposed to. But in fact, it could not do that because as an institution it was fundamentally contradictory to what the divine constitution was supposed to be.
0: Um, Right. But doesn't God give them permission to go ahead and, God
1: gives them permission um, because, in a sense, uh, Buber sees this as a sort of a divine concession in a similar way mm. to the creation of the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, you know, initially, God is supposed to be completely placeless, but people can't deal with it, and they create the golden calf. So then God says, okay, well, you know what you can do is you can put these cherubim on the Ark, and then that will form an empty throne of sorts. And that's a place that is in accordance with my character, as opposed to a place that is not in accordance with my character. Similarly, Mm -hmm. when God allows the Israelites to create the monarchy, they are supposed to also, in a sense, allow for prophecy to function as a check on the monarchy. The prophet is supposed to be within the system as a um, divine channel. And in, in a sense, the real authority actually lies with the prophet who is the channel for God's will. The monarch is supposed to be almost just like an administrator. But of course, the kings don't really allow this, and they create their own court prophets who just tell them what they want to hear, and they start persecuting the real prophets. So right. the monarchy becomes just like all the other monarchies. Um, it's just a shield uh, uh, for autocracy, he calls it. We're using divine justification. So it doesn't deserve to exist. Mm-hmm. And when he looks at modern Zionism, he sees the same situation potentially. Um, If Jewish settlers go and they make kibbutzim and they work the land and they share the produce and they live in harmony with their neighbors, then it's possible for there to be a modern version of this ancient mandate to fulfill the terms of their election and to create a society in which God is ruler. But if they want to create a state like all the other states, then it's just like when they created the monarchy and they will end up potentially going down the same wrong path uh, that they did in the ancient period.
0: Interesting. And so the, so the second part of uh, of the second of the two sort of large overarching questions uh, having to do with this is how does he, integrate the idea of a theopolity into the emerging rail politic of the jewish state mm-hmm. what sort of role does he take and what did you discover in his writings that he produces during that period as well as what he doesn't produce mm-hmm. what that he's about to produce um, that suggest his his own struggle with how these ideas Uh, and ideals should be put into practice.
1: Well, what I sort of, um, if you can call it discovered, because I mostly worked with published materials, although in at least one case, I found uh, a nice letter um, in which he talks about potentially writing a massive magnum opus on religion and politics that he never did end up writing. Um, but what I, what I learned was that there are a number of places in his writing in which he explicitly authorizes his readers to read his writings on contemporary Zionism in light of his writings on the Bible. Um, just little short editorials, um, for example, where in which he might compare David Ben-Gurion to King David, um, and that really is what led me to see these works, which, you know, Buber is a very heavily anthologized writer. So much of his mm-hmm. writing um, as we have it in English is in the form of selections of text that have been arranged by an editor um, into thematic collections. Um, and so his works are really very kind of siloed and, um, and yeah. what I was interested in doing was in breaking down the barriers between these silos, the biblical silo and the Zionist silo, because I think he authorizes you to do that some, in, explicitly in a number of places. Um, and seeing that where, I mean, where anarchism comes in to go back to that for a second is in his belief that the self ordering of a community does not only occur via the state. This is just a very basic and simple uh, political principle that is a Mm -hmm. bedrock assumption for a lot of people that goes totally unquestioned. So when you see, for example, in political discourse today, um, arguments being made that to question the right of the state of Israel to exist equals questioning Jewish self-determination. So therefore it's inherently anti-Semitic because um, it's anti-Semitic to say that Uh, of all the people in the world, only Jews should not be able to self-determine, right? The bedrock assumption underlying all of that is that the state is the vehicle of self-determination, that the nation has its being recognized and expressed through the state. This is a bedrock baseline assumption of politics in the 19th and early 20th century that anarchism questioned. Um, And so simply the fact that he doesn't see the state as the only way for people to live together um, in a self-ordered Uh, way means that he has a vista open to him for what Zionism could be that is not obvious to say the least to many others. Um, And it also means that he's able to see the biblical text very differently from many others so that where many biblical scholars would read, for example, Gideon's statement in the book of Judges that only God is the king of Israel um would read that as a metaphor, Buber sees it as literal. he says no, hmm. it's quite possible to imagine that these people believe that they were intending they were intended to create a society in which their king was invisible and, and did not have a court right and did not right. operate through uh, the traditional mechanisms of uh, ancient Near Eastern monarchies
0: so how does this new sort of synthesis that you've pulled together, um, cause you, uh, and how should it cause us, your readers to reflect on what is possible, not only, uh, in terms of Jewish self-determination, but in terms of political self-determination writ large?
1: Well, um, you know, I'm not, I think it, it can open a question. Um, I'm not sure how many people are persuaded, uh, I think typically from liberals and from socialists and from communists, you will often see reactions to anarchism that portray it as desirable, but impossible. Mm -hmm. The state is necessary because people are evil and um, Mm -hmm. must be restrained. I mean, this unifies all of those groups, right? Regardless of what they think of as the right uh, stance to take on labor or property they all agree that there are bad actors and the state has to restrain them. Um, And uh, they all think that it would be very, very nice if we could all just live in harmony without that. Um, But it's not possible. It's not feasible. So anarchism is dismissed as a sort of um, childish uh, fantasy. Whereas the anarchist Mm -hmm. always kind of wonders, well, if people are so evil, why do you want to put them in charge of states? that's just like uh it's very unclear why that is supposed to be so obviously a good thing to do um mm-hmm. and you know whether or not this persuades anyone of the viability of anarchism i think at least um we've reached a point in the um history of the relationship of the state of israel and the palestinians and its neighbors um that at the very least some kind of imagination is called for um right and you have people entertaining all kinds of strange notions like the uh two states uh one homeland idea like you know that in in the same country there would be two governments and they would each just rule their own people but without territorial distinction um mm-hmm. and you know people are people are interested in this kind of thing just because it seems like the options on the table in terms of where the relationships are is so uh, not working. And that's because everyone is kind of adhering to these still and worn political concepts. So I would right. hope that at the very least, um, you know, nobody can go back to the status quo ante um, to the situation in the twenties. And, you know, Buber was one of those people who thought that Zionism needed to happen through a very, very slow immigration process. It needed to be right. uh, all self-selecting individuals who were going to come because they were ideologically motivated and um, slowly build the society that would look the exact right way. And of course, it ended up being that massive numbers of refugees just had to show up all at once and uh, were not right. ideologically motivated necessarily at all. And- um, right that that caused fairly predictable responses from the people who were there already. So Mm -hmm. this reality always disrupts attempts to um, enact ideological programs. And Buber was aware of that. And you, if you read his writing over time, he's always attempting to address himself to the very, very latest situation. And if he were here today, I think he would still do that. He would try to address the exact present and not just say, Uh, well, here's what I want, and you impose this on the president fit everything into that mold.
0: Right. You know, one of the interesting things that the book does is it really sort of demolishes and then reconstructs, um, uh, actually leaves largely demolished, in my view, the sort of epistemological barriers that we put up between the study of religion and the study of politics. Um, It takes a look at Buber that sort of... um, Pays attention as you in the image you use to both those silos of his thought, but shows us the extent to which um those realms of thought are integrated. What do you think um is the larger message here for the academy and for the study of religion
1: um I guess I am a sort of interdisciplinary type by nature. I, I had an interdisciplinary major in undergrad, as I said before, and then I went and did a master's mm-hmm. in something called interdepartmental studies. And uh, my what drew me to religion as a department was that it's um, by nature so open methodologically. Um, and so I guess I think that there are certain phenomena – that simply can't be seen if you only look at them with one method mm-hmm. um, and so you know specialization has its benefits because it can it can isolate and extract particular things um, using its its particular ways of approaching the topic, but sometimes you can't see the object at all if you're only looking at it with one lens
0: and speaking. Of- my, la- my second to last question for you is to tell the story behind the cover of the book, which is really quite uh, shocking when you focus on it. Um, I don't want to ruin it for the readers, but I will say that once you look past the text of the title of the book and your name at the bottom, um, the visual image is arresting. Can you tell us the story behind that image?
1: Yes, that image appeared in a 1919 issue of Masken, which was a theater journal put out in Dusseldorf. And Gustav Landauer was invited to edit that journal. Um, But before he could take on his role as editor, the November Revolution of 1918 broke out. And Landauer ended up going to Munich to work with Kurt Eisner in um, creating the Bavarian uh, Socialist uh, Republic, which then after Eisner was assassinated, and there were a number of events that happened very quickly, um, was at one point the Bavarian Council Republic for a week, and then there was the second Bavarian Council Republic for another week. And then the social democratic government in Berlin sent in some mercenaries to put down this rebellion, and uh, Landauer was murdered by some of these mercenaries. Uh, and so the mm-hmm. Moskin ran an obituary. Uh, they ran a, a, uh, an issue dedicated to Landauer, who never ended up, I think, being able to be editor of it. And so this image was commissioned, I assume at that time, uh, to illustrate something that Buber wrote in his eulogy, Um, And in his eulogy, he at some point describes seeing a mural in a church in Italy in which there's a field of crucified people and they all look different. Um, And he sees Landauer hanging on one of these crosses. But in this image, it certainly doesn't look like medieval Catholic art. It's very um, jagged. The line work is, is bold and it's barely representational. And the colors are certainly very, right. uh, untraditional. And at the bottom of the picture, there's all of these raised fists, right? So right. I think that, um, while it's possible that the original mural was a reference to a sort of medieval Catholic legend of the 10,000 martyrs, um, this image really evokes Spartacus. Um, right. And, and Buber compares Landauer to Christ in his martyrdom. Hmm. But Spartacus is the one who was crucified with many others. Uh, Christ was only crucified with two other people. So I feel like there is a, a crux in this identity here of Landauer with Jesus, because I think Buber thinks that Landauer should have been Jesus, but that he made a mistake by affiliating himself with this Um, what you might call ordinary revolution, that it was in some sense against his own Landauerian principles. And in that sense, there was a sort of a a kind of quantum superposition of Christ and Spartacus where the violent revolution and the nonviolent change that is supposed to take place only through example and influence are kind of confused and overlapping each other. And it really, it really signifies the whole problematic of how to have a politics of ideals, how to try to bring spirit to the world while not allowing the spirit to be subdued by the world.
0: Wonderful answer. Finally, just let us know, give us a peek into what you're working on next.
1: Um, So right now I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I jumped off from the Buber project into um, the question of political economy. Um, Uh Buber at one point, you know, uh, when he is talking about this divine covenant and kingship of God uh, makes a reference to Max Weber and says that um, this is uh, God wants not just to create a religion, but also to create Wirtschaft und Gesellschaft economy and society. And, Mm -hmm. um, yet in most of his work, he doesn't really talk very much about economics. Um, he mentions a few institutions. He talks about socialism in a very general and ethical way, which is, I think, in the tradition of, uh, much German Jewish thought, which sees socialism as a kind of neo-Kantian ethical imperative, much more than as a, as an economic system. So, um, I began to be interested in what else was out there, um, on judaism and economy that would be thinkable in this frame the same frame that attempts to think of uh, theopolitics as um something that puts divine authority into a position that delegitimizes human authority um how would that work with with economy and so it's really very um just getting started and i'm really just reading a lot of what's what's out there right now and trying to orient myself in that literature.
0: It sounds like a fascinating project and I hope, uh, I, I hope we get to read it, um, before, um, anything cataclysmic happens in the economy or the political sphere.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you. I I also hope that, uh, you know, I'm actually kind of optimistic. I, 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 don't, I hope we don't get hit by the meteorite because I feel like there could be good things around the corner, but, um, Yeah, that would be, it would be nice if we can avoid the cataclysm.
0: Yes, agreed. I've been talking today with Samuel Chaim Brody, assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Kansas. And we've been discussing his book, Martin Buber's Theopolitics, published in 2018 by Indiana University Press. Professor Brody, it was a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much.
1: Pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me.